Welcome back to the Africa is a Country podcast. My name is William Shockey and you are listening to Africa's a Country's monthly or weekly or however often we release it now, talk and interview show on political events on the continent as well as cultural criticism from a left perspective. It's been a while since we've recorded the episode. We were on a month-long hiatus on a safari, but now we are back and ready to roll. Stay tuned for some exciting updates on what's going to be happening to all of our podcasts. We're going to be including some others in the rotation, so keep a lookout for that. But at least once a month, you will hear my voice. I don't know if that's good news to your ears or bad news to your ears. Whichever way, you'll hear my voice and the voice of other people who will come on and enlighten us on goings on on the continents. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, as well as, most importantly, check out africasacountry.com for new writing. So I am very excited for this episode. We are very fortunate to have a regular AIAC contributor speaking to us today. He's appeared on the podcast before. He's written a lot for the site as well. In fact, his most recent article, The Politics of Pathology, which you should check out, is on the rising tide of medical xenophobia as well as xenophobia generally in South Africa. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that article. But the reason he is on the show today is to talk about his new book, which is called Shoot to Kill, Police and Power in South Africa. And I am talking about Christopher McMichael, who is a cultural critic and political commentator. He has a PhD in political science and international relations from Rose University and writes on power, crime, and culture. Chris, welcome to the show. It's good to have you back again. Uh, hi, William. Thanks. It's good to be back. So I want to start by asking you about what motivated you to write this book. I think the book came out on a very timely occasion, which is on the heels of the 10th anniversary of the Marikana Massacre. And I think that when people think about police brutality in South Africa, perhaps the foremost episode in our post-apartheid history, at least, is the massacre when 34 miners were were killed um, at Lonman Mine in in the northwest province of South Africa. So, could you talk a little bit about a little bit about what this book is about, um, as well as what motivated you to write it? Um, well, I think initially I started working on the idea for this about two years ago during the COVID-19 lockdown, just because of having, you know, that's such an isolating, bizarre experience. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd try to do something constructive out of it. And I've been writing on a lot of aspects of um, things about crime and um, authoritarianism in South Africa a lot. And, and I've also written quite a lot on things of like security, surveillance and policing. And for quite a while, I'd had an idea of, you know, maybe putting them into one sort of um, general book. And during the process when I was putting these ideas together, I got sort of offered an opportunity to um, do, a, I was a book about um, not just police violence, but mm. also the general politics of policing in South Africa. And so when I was thinking of that pitch, I decided something I'd always wanted to see is that, so there's a lot of great writing on criminology in mm. South Africa, especially in post-apartheid South Africa. And at the same time, we have a very rich historical literature, which looks at the various different kinds of policing and states repression we've seen throughout South African history. But a lot of that um, literature is often separated from each other. Mm. They're not necessarily in an, an immediate discussion. And I was very interested in looking at how, you know, the influence of 
the Dutch East India Company and that kind of colonialism and then the British Empire and apartheid created this kind of um, the sort of political and psychic infrastructure of policing today. So my book is divided into two parts, two sections. The first section um, looks at the history of policing and social control in South Africa from the late 17th century with the first uh, settlement by the Dutch East India Company um, through to apartheid. And the second part is focused on um, the post-apartheid period where as we're talking about now with Marikana, I think Marikana, we have such a long history in this country of police, mass police and state violence, um, the Sharpeville massacre just being one mm, of them, mm. the aftermath of um, Soweto 1976. Because one of the things when I did the research for this book was that how um, it wasn't just police repression after 1976, you also had white vigilantes being encouraged to um, participate in violently repressing um, mass protest in South Africa and um, so there is this very dark, unfortunately, history of state-sanctioned massacres in South Africa. But I divide the book into two parts because I think post-1994, for all its sort of ambiguities and letdowns, it is a very strong dividing line in South African history because the past of policing in South Africa was always controlled by a small minority, which was explicitly using it for a process of Racial and class domination. Mm. Post-1994, police violence takes place in a very different context because at least on paper, according to the constitution, police mandates, police are um, supposed to act in ways that respect human rights and respect civil liberties. And something like Marikana, because obviously Marikana, if you look at it, it was a very tense, quite violent situation. And that also included violence from striking workers as well. Mm. But at the end of the day, the expectation of, you know, having the police is that they are there to quieten and quell social unrest in that way, in a way that's nonviolent and to de-escalate that situation. And I think so much of Marikana, you see how a very sort of militaristic approach is what led to um, these mass shootings. And there were many opportunities for, um, you know, forms of de-escalation mm. and negotiation that could have, you know, dealt with the violence and the tension. Instead, it becomes this act of collective punishment. And I think Marikana has been this sort of psychic wound in yeah, South Africa yeah, because absolutely. not just the actual violence, but also the extent to which people in the state and um, also in the private sector tried to go out of their way to sort of escape responsibility for it or to sort of share kind of disinformation to try um, take away the focus from the act of violence. And so I think that's, especially now with the 10th anniversary of Marikana, it was kind of um, coincidental because it wasn't necessarily planned to come out, but mm. um, it did come out around the same time. And I think in a lot of ways, Marikana, I think also prefigured a lot of things um, we've experienced in the last few years where, you know, revelations about state capture, this general kind of sense that South Africa is in this state of kind of potential sort of social collapse. And I think, you know, not, not addressing Marikana, not treating it as a state crime, not ensuring full responsibility and accountability has had a very, very destructive effect on mm. South African democracy. And mm. not just democracy, but, you know, the, the popular psyche and, and people's sort of morale and, and trust in the system and ideas mm. of justice and law. Mm. It's interesting because what you just spoke about there, the lack of accountability or the, uh, the failure from the states to afford Marikana the proper gravity of travesty that it was, 
your book traces how these failings on the part of the state aren't accidental they aren't anomalies or, or aberrations and in as much as 1994 was a dividing line that marked a break between policing during the colonial and apartheid period which had these explicit mandates for repression and the attempt in the post-apartheid period to professionalize the police the fact that it's in insignificant part became a, a service and and those aspects were were emphasized um i think what's powerful about your book um is that it's it also shows the continuities and that there can be all of these efforts to reform the police to give it a gentler and human face but if we pay attention to its original reasons for being as those developed historically it's always this vehicle for for social control um yeah thanks so much i mean i think something i also tried to do in this book was um when you read it um the subtitle police and power my interest was always looking at not just the police as a specific institution in terms of saps but in the idea of policing in general and those mm. are the different forms of sort of social control you have in societies um and if you look at south african history that um historically it didn't you know like for example for example when the voc began um settlement in what became cape town there was no such thing at that point historically as the police as we know them today you know there wasn't a group of um people delegated by the state um to you know enforce daily crime control but instead they had um private militias and you know things like for example using fortification to um segregate and sort of um attempt to kind of repress indigenous people just for example so and so that's the one aspect of policing it's not just in this book i didn't just look at it as an institution i looked at how the police we have now are the outgrowth of a lot of different forms of social control which have ended up being collected into one particular specific body mm. but historically it's taken a lot of different forms and i think something i also looked at in my books so my book is not a specific institutional history but i look at this thread throughout south african history of different forms of policing so um this book has put a lot of focus on the role of private police and private militias in south african history and so instead of talking about them separately i show the ways especially during colonialism and in apartheid um sort of state power often worked in tandem with different forms of private power and i also thought it was really important to just deal with the role of um ideology as power mm. and how um what a society defines as crime is constantly changing because you know through long periods of time in south african history um you know uh, the majority of people having the vote was criminalized the majority mm. of people organizing um politically or expressing themselves was also like heavily criminalized so there's you know there's never crime is always a gray area philosophically yeah. i'm very much cuz i actually um at university i started at one point i was training to be an uh, academic philosopher rather than going into <laughs> political theory so i'm training for that at the moment and oh, i might, i think you've you've made the right decision by abandoning it no no i i love it i want to go back to it now after this because i realize a lot of crime issues are um it's often very ambiguous gray areas because you know in a society I think it's and this book as well I tried to be very pragmatic about the fact that this book is very critical of how policing and private security have been 
used in South African history and a lot of the very conservative and often very um, dangerous and often very delusional ideologies that have underpinned it. But at the same time, I think realistically, any society, you do need some form of, you know, kind of crime control, harm prevention, and also ways of regulating social conflict. Mm. So um, and my argument in the book is that we, in the, last, in the last sort of two centuries, most countries in the world, pretty much every country, the modern nation state, let's say, has adopted a idea of the police as an internal body which prevents uh, crime. And then you have, you know, the military, which is supposedly an external body, which deals with external threats. And But if you actually look at the historical record, police forces um, are, were generally initially created for reasons of uh, social control in both industrializing Europe and later America and also the colonial world. And over time, they've definitely accumulated other different services. Like, for example, you know, I talk about like the importance of forensics and um, mm. detective investigation and things like that in this book. But that was never historically the reason they were created. And that's not to say they haven't necessarily evolved. But um, what I tried to do with this book was and also this book is very much coming out in the wake of things like the George Floyd uprising mm. in um 2020 in the US, um, things like activism uh, against police brutality in Africa and Latin America, which I also discuss in the book. And the book's kind of arguing almost it's holding two things, I think, mm. at the same time. The one is being very critical of these kind of authoritarian and often very violent forms of policing um, and social control throughout South African history and the ideologies that underpin them, while simultaneously also I think being a realist about the, you know, the reality of crime, mm. both interpersonal crime and sort of social crimes and ways to regulate it. But I also, um, and I also make the argument in the book that the way the police have been set up is there's also a very heavy class bias because they're set up to do two particular things really well. The one thing is to regulate criminality, especially when it comes from impoverished or working class people. And Again, this is not to fall into that very simplistic argument where it's, you know, oh, no, crime is always just linked to economic conditions. Um, crime is a very, very complex thing. And um, so a lot of what they set up to do is to regulate those kind of daily crimes. A lot of the time it's things that are emerging from other social problems, like, for example, drug addiction or homelessness. So they set up to regulate that. They also are set up to regulate political dissent, which is this is something I talk about very much in this book because one of the reasons modern police were developed is because they can infiltrate civil society on a much more daily level than um, like for example militaries could because in Britain for example in the early 19th century when they began to introduce uh, the London Metropolitan Police which is mm -hmm. kind of the original prototype for what globally we now we imagine to be a professional police force and one of the big impetuses behind that was because that was an era of um, very big democratic social ferment. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. big democratic agitation. And what would always happen was was that the British states at the time would use militias to sort of violently repress it. Like for example, um, Percy Shelley's poem uh, "The Mask of Anarchy," which is you know one of mm. the most famous political poems in the English language. That's very much about the Peterloo massacre and. And in a way, it's actually quite similar to Americana. It's, you know, that mm. sort of um, just firing into crowds type of um, policing. And that very much backfired because it created a lot of hostility uh, politically. And so, for example, when the police were introduced in the UK um, 
in the 18 sort of 20s, there was a lot of not just like radical, but also a lot of liberal opposition to it because they were seen as this potentially dictatorial force that was going to, um, you know, sort of start spying on people. And so um, my argument is that police forces now are set up for, essentially are set up for kind of daily, daily forms of social control um, and also political repression. But things that the police tend to not be good at enforcing are things like the crimes of politicians and very wealthy people. Mm-hmm. And there are two reasons for that. The one is a very obvious one, as we've seen in South Africa, where, you know, if you're someone in the state or private sector who's compromised in some way, um, you know, you can use the fact of money, power, class privilege, media influence. You can use that to ensure that the state takes more leniency towards you. But then at the same time, there's a lot of really dangerous social harms in society which are not necessarily um, viewed as criminal. Like, for example, a lot of sort of corporate practices of environmental destruction are in terms of, you know, actually creating a massive amount of social misery and economic suffering. They are clearly crimes, but they're not regulated. And so my argument is that, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, deny the fact that, you know, police, modern police forces definitely do have skills at things like apprehending people for murder but at the same time um this idea that they are almost automatically set up for crime control in the same way that for example the fire department is set up to fight fires or a hospital is set up for the purpose for medical purposes my argument is that the police are a very very different Mm. body from that and i also think that um because along with the chapter on so in this book i have an entire chapter on the saps from 94 to 2021 but i also have an entire chapter on um, private security and sort of their role in crime control in south africa and i think um yeah what i wanted to do with this book was you know be very pragmatic and realistic about the reality of violence and crime in south africa because i've I've definitely encountered people who have that attitude where you know you say oh well you know you start using phrases like class repression or gender (laughs) racial oppression they'll be say well that's yeah fine but so what you know how's that going to help me mm-hmm. how's criticizing the police or private security companies how's that going to help me if someone you know tries to break into my house or someone mm-hmm. tries to um you know steal my personal property and so and my argument in the book is that those are completely justifiable and understandable but you know the police are not necessarily the best um institutions that are necessarily actually focused on doing that mm. It's funny, recently we saw your argument playing out in, in real time as in the week after Queen Elizabeth II's death, there was a funeral procession, I think, passing through London, flanked by members of the royal family, one of them being Prince Andrew, who <laughs> has well-founded associations with Jeffrey Epstein's uh, sex trafficking and exploitation of, of minors. Uh, with many allegations made against him and a bystander heckled by calling him a sick man and the London Metropolitan Police proceeded to yank him uh, and arrest him on the violation of breaching the peace um, while Prince Andrew... I love it. It's so, it's so, like, it's so feudal. It's exactly. like, oh, this peasant, oh, this yeah. peasant <laughs> got out of line. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I mean, there's a lot to unpack here. The, the one thing that I think is is interesting as, as your book, as you've already mentioned, is is very careful to avoid discussing the police as simply this clear 
tool or appendage of of capital and the bourgeoisie that the the institutional history and mandates and cultures and norms of the police don't merely exist to at every single point represent uh, class interests um and there's a way in which the police itself as this institution has developed a kind of logic and identity of its own there's a way in which police members themselves understand their mission in society one that is a a very conservative mindset viewing themselves as the gatekeepers of of social order and social order understood within a very particular ideological framework that treats uh with suspicion the masses um and is particularly patriarchal um and chauvinistic uh, could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, thanks very much. I mean, I think one of the things I talked about in my book, because I think, you know, terms terms like law, law and order, um, I think sometimes, I think it's almost, they're such open signifier terms. Like I would I would say that any kind of society just to exist obviously needs some kind mm. of order. You know, it's, it's pretty much a normative assumption. But I think if you look historically, there've been many different conceptions of social order. And I think my argument in the book is that in post-apartheid South Africa, we've inherited a very particular idea of social order, which is that social order is something that has to be very aggressively imposed. It has to be imposed um, at a daily level because you see, for example, a lot of police violence incidents in South Africa and in many other countries, but it's, it's a very much a theme here. The initial supposed inciting violence is disrespect mm, to the police. Yeah, and. Yeah. I argue in the book that um, you can trace that back to a very, very patriarchal conception of power. I mean, even going back literally in the origin of the word to the Roman Empire, where the idea of the patriarch as the sort of head of the home Mm. slash domestic despot. And, um, you know, it's this idea that challenging a state official in order to ensure social order, that person needs to be, you know, taught a lesson violently Mm. because, you know, if people start talking out of turn or start getting ideas, um, they will, you know, they'll just start acting like animals. And mm-hmm. it also becomes very self-defeating because one of the things you notice in South Africa, especially with a lot of violence at things um, with political unrest, which is often sort of called service livery pro- process, which is, I think, quite a reductive, <laughs> very reductive <laughs> yeah, term. Absolutely. But one of the things that happens there is that, you know, those things would never happen if, they, if those very basic issues had been addressed, things like housing, water. I mean, obviously, again... Not all protests are about that, but that's it seems to be a very, very general a general theme. And what happens is, is you know, people, there's something I think in, in kind of human nature where if you violently repress people, it often has the opposite effect from, you know, making them more uh, law abiding or more mm. ordered. It often inspires sort of more violence in, um, in response, you know? And so my argument is that we definitely need order in society, but instead of having this very authoritarian order, which is what we have now, and not just authoritarian, but also very conservative, because something I argue in this book, we have a very hypocritical culture in South Africa, where if you're a a working class, even a middle class person, often, you know, the state views you as not being particularly important. You don't have money or enough money to, or political influence to get what you need to do. Whereas we have a culture of people in political leadership who often are, implicated in i mentioned for example in the recent africa as a country article you know gaten mckenzie who's yeah. now become mr 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 law and order 
he was a, I found an article with him from a couple years ago where he was bragging about how he was a king when he was in jail. So, you know, he didn't seem, he didn't seem very chastised by his, by his incarceration. Yeah, he didn't. And, um, you know, and then sort of espousing this. And there's a, there's a quote in the book as well where Jacob Zuma last year, I think, said, you know, South Africa is, too, is not tough enough on criminals. And I thought that was a very ironic statement. <laughs> and, but that's what, you know, and um, so we have that thing where you have kind of, you know, officials who will be very, very conser- hyper-conservative, hyper-authoritarian about, you know, law and order acting themselves in very sort of, delinquent and um, kind of criminal ways. And my argument is that what we need to push for in this country is a much more democratic and sort of humanistic idea of social order, where instead of, you know, policing being like based just on this kind of Skopskid and Donna Mm. kind of clapping people, as they say, um, type attitude, actually trying to work out what the underlying social problems are and trying to find much more sort of um, long-term sustainable ways of ensuring social order. Whilst also, I think we also really do have a serious, serious social violence problem in this country in terms of things like murder, for example, um, you know, sexual sexual assault. And one of the things with a lot of those crimes, they, again, are not necessarily crimes that can just be regulated by having more police. A lot of, for example... Um, you know, sexual violence has to do with things um, like, you know, kind of domestic power structures, you know, the yeah. fact women like lack a lot of power and material access in society. And, you know, it's not the police literally cannot solve those kind of problems. It's mm. it's almost, you know, the cops, it's too late yeah. when they come. Yeah. And then other things as well, like, for example, I've been reading um, some of the um, reporting that's been coming out about these Lesotho so-called Zamazama syndicates yes which are um i guess sort of like armed gangs which are operating uh between south africa and lesotho but it's also very clear that they are have access to police armories because they've been sharing videos where they're wielding like very very specific armaments which are supposed to only belong to police special forces and that's obviously is a problem with political corruption because Mm -hmm. there are people in the state who for personal gain are funding criminal organizations with weapons, you know, then going committing brutal massacres in places um, like Soweto a few months ago. Mm. And I just think that, and also, you know, again, the problems with like, for example, organized crime and syndicates, because we have serious problems in this country with syndicates. I mean, there's syndicates in ESCOM, there's syndicates in the trucking industry. It's, Mm -hmm. It's created so much economic and social chaos. And those are political problems those are problems of a lack of accountability and i mean you know i think that's what this book very much argues which is that we do have a lot of multiplying kind of crime and social order problems but i think that this idea of more securitization and more police it's not just that this is okay this is this utopian thing like okay guys you know what's so funny about <laughs> peace love and understanding <laughs> why can't we get along yeah. my argument is that a lot of these methods we've inherited are not just violent and undemocratic they also are just ineffective and impractical Mm -hmm. and wasteful like for example last year after the kind of uh, massive political unrest in KZN and in parts of Hateng there became this sort of public discussion about well we have this police which has all this kind of riot equipment do they have enough kind of crowd control equipment and again I feel like those debates are almost kind of coming too late because you know all the evidence that's come out is that the unrest was a combination of political manipulation from um, faction fighting within the state, which again, you know, that's a political issue. 
simultaneously a lot of um, desperation, anger and hunger um, in the wake of COVID-19 and various other scandals. And, you know, we're fooling ourselves if we think that, you know, more police crowd control is the solution mm. to these these problems. So what what is the alternative? You mentioned thinking about democratic and humanistic ways of achieving public safety and social order. And as you acknowledge, this book was written in the wake of Black Lives Matter in America, precipitated by the murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin in, in Minneapolis. And what emerged in that context was the popularization of abolition and abolitionist arguments against policing, against prisons, and much as this is a tradition that's existed for some time now, it really got a new lease on life. It got into that. Teen Vogue, and that's when, in, you know, that's, that's when you know. know. <laughs> that's when you know we've made it. So we're, we're hoping for the day we get we get coverage on Teen Vogue on, on a, a, for, for Africa as a country, if any Teen Vogue editors are listening. <laughs> so there was this massive kind of... Um, embrace of abolitionist arguments not only in the states but but across the world and that sparked a lot of conversations about whether or not that is workable here i mean on this episode i think our first guest was paul clark who writes on abolition for for africa as a country and and other venues so what does what does a, a movement to achieve democratic and humanistic policing in south africa look like Ah, thank you very much. That's such a great question. I mean, I think one thing was um, I definitely engaged with a lot of um, abolitionist literature in this book, especially in the final chapter. And I think one of the things where, you know, there's a certain kind of framing of the idea of abolition where some people will, you know, try make out that it's like that movie, The Dark Knight Rises, where Bane <laughs> lets all the prisoners out of jail. And, you know, it's this idea that, you know, tomorrow there's just going to be no police, yeah. no prisoners. Great scenes in the movie, by the way. I mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fantastic. Yeah, underrated movie. I think I need to write on it for the 10th anniversary. But um, the idea of abolition is not this idea of abolition as something, you know, you just almost like nihilistically do for its own sake. But it's this idea of um, a really good framing of it is the book by... Uh, Dio Mayer, which came out verso mm. last year, um, A World Without Police. And his book, he does not talk, his, his idea of a world without police doesn't mean a world without safety, without you know public goods, public infrastructure and protection. But it's this idea of an abolitionist almost horizon where looking at problems of like crime and insecurity, instead of necessarily thinking, okay, what is the militarized police solution to this? but actually looking at sort of um, alternative ways of achieving those goals, which don't rely on things like mass incarceration, um, criminalization of poverty and things like that. But simultaneously, I also was very cautious about this idea mm. of, you know, being a clout chaser as it were, and just, you know, <laughs> sort of just wholeheartedly cut and pasting yeah. abolition ideas from the US because the situation in the US, I actually talk a lot about kind of similar histories we have of, you know, um, racial and kind of class domination in the first chapter but the u.s policing i think looks very different from south africa because mm. for example in the u.s you have a situation where a lot of um police departments are heavily you know overfunded mm. and the overfunding leads to this sort of self-perpetuating cycle where police departments will be you know acquiring military grade type weapons and then they start using that to do regular kind of warrant searches and so a lot of the abolitionist arguments in the u.s are very much to do with money that could be used for um other social 
benefits, especially exactly. in yeah, especially in wake of things like COVID nineteen. Instead of wasting that on police armaments, actually putting that into um, different kinds of social programs, which are going to achieve a lot more collective security. But I also think South Africa is a very different situation because, like, a very common complaint in a lot of communities in South Africa is that there is no police presence, there's no police funding, and you know, people, I, I, you know, far be it from me as sort of middle class academics, you know, be telling someone in like Kailicha, for example, oh no, you, um, you don't need any more cops. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. it's a that's a present solution for a lot of people, and I completely understand that. So, I definitely try to keep those two things in mind at the same time. So, one of the things what I did was I also think it's very important in South Africa to. Because um, I think, unfortunately, in South Africa, we sometimes have this very isolationist approach to things and often don't see ourselves as part of global problems. And it can also be kind of, it's, again, it's quite self-defeating because Completely. one of the things I looked at was, especially in places like, I feel um, certain countries like Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, I feel that we very much mirror each other because we have very, very unequal societies, very, very complex unequal societies, very, very complex dynamics of things like social violence and um, state corruption. And I think I was very much looking at some of the examples there of what people have. So I, I, I took a different sort of multi-tiered approach to it of being sort of cognizant of abolition, abolitionist ideas and being very sympathetic towards that idea of working towards uh, an abolitionist horizon because it's not necessarily something you're going to achieve. It's more the idea of having, you know, having a positive vision of something to work towards mm. in the future. So the one thing I did say was that I do think that even as um, bad as the current state of South African policing seems to be, there are things like, for example, the Independent Police Directorate, which was a big improvement that was made after 1994 because prior to that, you know, police in South Africa, pretty I feel, operated in a fairly lawless kind of state a lot of mm. the time. There was, obviously there were regulations and laws that they had to work within. But it was also very, very easy for them to blankly ignore that and for the state to support that because it aided state repression. But things like IPID, again, on paper, you actually have the infrastructure now to ensure, you know, far less violence just by ensuring that citizens are more protected and that there's accountability for police officers. But that system, um, uh, the research of Viewfinder has done. Yeah, incredible um, work. Yeah, they've, they've done really great work on that. And they um, released a database of basically thousands and thousands of um, allegations um, citizens had made of abuses by the police. And that system has been kind of allowed to just sort of be paralyzed. So you have this complete lack of accountability. And it's a ridiculous situation because, you know, the SAPS every year is spending millions and millions of rands trying to defend police from like legal mm. cases where you know mm. it's much easier just don't have that happen in the mm. first place mm. so my one thing was that even if you don't necessarily have a movement arguing for abolition in south africa i think we definitely need an anti-police violence yes, mo yes. movement and which which to to ask a question about that yeah. um i thought that was a great point saying that we need to cultivate a culture of outrage at police misconduct and brutality and i think it boggles the mind. I mean, not not entirely, but a, a country like South Africa has no shortage of police brutality, communities that have been torn up by the ways in which the, the police have acted improperly. But we still fail to see that movement 
kind of coming into its own. I think I, I think the closest we saw were the protests against the murder of Nathaniel Julies uh, during COVID. Um, but still, we haven't seen those kind of efforts uh, germinating. Why do you think that's the case? I think, personally, I think there's two reasons for that. I think the one is just the legacy of sort of um, spatial segregation that we have mm. in this country, which is... Um, and, you know, especially not just in terms of physical space, but also just in terms of psychological and cultural space, because mm. we've inherited the system from apartheid where 90, basically 90 percent of life in the country, of people living in the country, were seen as second class citizens. And, you know, the states and private forces can kind of do whatever they want and their deaths are not a big deal. And I think because in so many ways, post apartheid South Africa, we've retained this very, very sort of segregated um, society where there's not a conception of a sort of collective good. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one aspect mm -hmm. of it. But I think there's another actually quite even more disturbing aspect because I think one of the things, one of the really disturbing things I realized writing this book was that South Africa has had such, I mean, I think almost every single country in the world has had, you know, a lot of violence, some violence and strife in its history. But our history has been exceptionally violence and brutal and i feel that you know that kind of idea of society just being a sort of a daily war where life is very cheap i think it's something that um has become just so embedded that we don't even notice it mm. and i think that's why it's so important to have this kind of outrage around these things because and one of the problems is outrage doesn't get sustained here because yeah. we unfortunately have a culture of we're very happy to martyr people and to promote them as martyrs but not so happy like seem less active to actually do the work of you know stopping having to make people be martyrs in the first place because a lot of sort of you know political killing i mean you know i talk about it in the book political killings and assassinations have become i would say especially in the last decade have become completely normalized here and yeah. this is a very very scary situation where you know public servants who are trying to do the right thing get taken out municipal managers who are not even great municipal managers they just have a baseline of you know not breaking the law get killed political activists housing rights activists get killed all the time and i mean i think it's it's very hard to build this kind of you know it's very hard to make people care but i think this is one of the biggest problems in our country because um we become so desensitized to things and you know things getting worse all the time and conditions deteriorating we've, we've got a very much an enclave society mm. where i think mm. i mean i i'm you know i'm totally complicit in this like living in johannesburg it's a very very stressful environment and i often have this kind of borderline like you know kind of mad max kill or be yeah. killed type attitude yeah. just because of that's the environment that you're in and i think we we have those are the two challenges we have such segregated spaces so we don't have a sense that okay even if people are from you know different racial ethnic or even class backgrounds despite that there's some general like collective you know sign of social good because one of the things i'm like also kind of inspired the book because um as a south african when i was like you know grew up here kind of lived here you know so used to violence happening around me all the time violence happening to me quite a few times you know because i've had like some pretty serious incidents of you know thinking i'm about to die <laughs> and um then i spent some time living in japan and sweden and what struck me about there and like not to like fetishize everything about those countries but something i realized there in both those societies they do have an idea of a basic kind of social baseline where mm. it's mm. there's a certain basic kind of standard that's become accepted and i mean you know in like 
in Stockholm or Tokyo, if the police killed someone in the same way that would happen in South Africa, even if it was like a poor person or an immigrant, it would be a a pretty massive um, scandal. And I think here it's become so normalized because of colonialism and mm-hmm. apartheid. And I think mm-hmm. in post-apartheid South Africa, instead of having a democracy which has, you know, sort of um, fixed a lot of these social problems, a lot of them have been allowed to continue. And simultaneously, we're in this very sort of quite extreme late stage kind of capitalism mm-hmm. where you know this is kind of attitude of like well fuck everyone else yeah exactly just do what you want and exactly. i mean yeah i think it's 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 such a hard thing to break that yeah i mean just to mention as an aside three books that i think pair well with yours chris is and you cite them a lot in yours as well as is nikki falkov's uh, anxious joburg and and warrior state which has just come out hopefully we can get on to talk about that and what belongs nation on the couch, which really gets to grips with the psychopolitics (laughs) of of this South African mindset that you describe, which is this complete anarchic war of all against all. And I think it's interesting that I think your book is, is unique in, in that it highlights the erosion of a South African civic life as being an important ingredient to just to generalize disorder and violence that we bear witness to. And, and a lot of why that's the case is is geographically the case and the spatial divisions among people, but also I think just the way in which there is, there is no polis in a way that you can refer to, no way in which South Africans uh, feel like they belong to uh, a common democratic project. And that's, that's something that's going to require uh, a, a, a reorganization beyond policing and public safety and social order but a a broader political shift um and as you say building that building that is hard but i wanted to talk about this i mean there's a lot of books in 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 south africa that have come out that are are trying to address the the roots of of our malaise and one book which i am reading at the moment with the hopes of critiquing it is is by songezo zibi who is the former editor of business day and uh, he's just come out with this book called Manifesto, which is supposed to be the sweeping analysis of South Africa's problems as well as uh, with some prescriptions of, of what is to be done. And a big point he makes is that South Africa's professional and middle classes are isolated, withdrawn, disinterested, and passive. And as far as the questions of policing are concerned, you have, on the one hand, this general withdrawal from public provision by South African middle classes, everyone is behind enclaves, tall walls and and fences and sources their security and protection from private security companies, which you analyze uh, really well. But I also wonder if there's an extent, and this is a pattern everywhere, where kind of now everyone is is sort of susceptible to just uh, misconduct from the police, almost in a way that is... um, indifference to your to your class position do you think that could be uh a way to maybe gradually i don't even know if this is desirable but 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 forge a kind of a consciousness of this problem and and breed the kind of alliances that can that can lead to to change yeah i mean absolutely it's, it's something i talk about in my book you know we should never underestimate the power of self-interest and you know <laughs> exactly. because i mean the thing is it's i mean that's the argument i make in the book because and I also feel like with middle class people in South Africa, 
um, that's why I really, really liked um, the books you mentioned, like Wavi Long's book um, and Nikki Falkov's uh, work and also her edited collection. Because in Anxious, Anxious Joburg, uh, the point's made quite a few times. There's often this very weird thing with academic literature in South Africa. They'll talk about, you know, a place like Johannesburg and how we definitely are cities of walls and surveillance. You know, it's this like J.G. Ballard type situation, but cranked mm. up to like times 10. And... Um, one of the things that often you get this kind of interesting situation where you'll get sort of middle-class academics talking about, you know, oh, the middle class is cowering behind their walls. But as you see in a book like Ancestral Book, these spheres of crime um, and like social collapse, they link different people in South Africa because, you know, even that architecture of having barbed wire everywhere, which is something we've got used to in South Africa, mm -hmm. you know, looking like... Um, the sun, 1915, <laughs> like, like all the time. It's not healthy. And one of the things as well, I argue, is that obviously because of a lot of the failings of policing, um, there's been the emergence of a really large private security sector. And, you know, the private security sector goes from everywhere, from, you know, some like very small scale type companies, very localized to... I found out about this whole world of executive protection where huh. you can get like personalized bodyguards and helicopter armed response and all these kind of things so there's there's an entire range of that but i think something that especially july last year i think it revealed how this enclave society and this idea that you can just constantly bunker yourself is a delusion because the only people who can really afford to do that are the super rich and i think you know we saw that last year with the july unrest because you know um things are terrible for poor and working class people in this country but things are also very rough for a lot of middle-class people you know it's it's a very serious time of social and economic crisis and what i argued in this book is this idea that you can just constantly war yourself up from problems is it's it doesn't work because we yeah. saw that last year because you know once um you know the entire port of durban got closed off there was like serious talk about food shortages in mm -hmm. johannesburg mm -hmm. you know even at the level of just supermarkets and um my argument is that it's in a social interest to have, um, you know, rising social standards and some sort of sense of like the state, but also society actually having a bare minimum of caring for people. Mm. And at the same time, that's also good for you personally, because, you know, Johannesburg is a very bizarre city because it's, um, you know, we're a major urban center. But, you know, things like not having public transport, that's considered normal. Things like... <laughs> you know, not being able to ever go out at night, not really. I mean, Johannesburg does have a lot of really good parks. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to... Lots I've, of parks behind fences. Though. Lots of parks behind fences. I don't want to just completely snag <laughs> off Joburg. But, you know, it's like we have a lot of things as well, but it's not integrated in the way where, you know, you don't need money to just go to basic places. And, I mean, uh, one of the examples I made in the book was talking about how we have a situation in South Africa where, you know, with hijacking, where it's terrible. You know, you can go to the, you can go to the mall, come back, your car's gone. That's yeah. that's like a <laughs> South African experience. And, you know, I'm like, well, we need to create a situation where we're not constantly creating a society where so many people are not just economically dis disenfranchised, but I also mm. think something that creates a lot of crime and violence here is because not just because of poverty, but it's because of poverty and a lot of relative wealth and commercial power side by side exactly. because it creates a very desperate situation for a lot of people. It creates a lot of frustrated, angry people who are, you know, prepared to go into the profession of violence. And I think my argument is that 
one of the failings of a lot of, not the failings, but, you know, there's a certain kind of like academic and media discourse where it's acts as like, oh, you know, if you're, if you're middle class, you, you're insulated from society. Mm. And I really, really think we need to get away with that from that. Because, I mean, one of the things um, I was looking at in the research, I mentioned it in the book, is there was this insufferable article that was written in the Daily Maverick last year it's like one of the worst things i've ever read in my life and it basically was saying well you know joburg's terrible but you can just buy like you know you can buy a powerwall and buy a tesla and it's gonna get because i was like yeah that's that's the lived experience of of so many yeah. people I'm trying to think of which article you're referring to because there's been a few it's quoted <laughs> in the book i can't yeah i'm not can't name the but i just i was like very angry because i was just like this assumption that you just buy a tesla and buy a powerwall and I mean, I think it's like, it's that, it's that metaphor of like, you know, uh, frogs boiling mm -hmm. in a kind of pot. Mm -hmm. We do have a shared collective fate. And I mean, you can't just indefinitely have the situation where social conditions are constantly getting worse for the, um, the majority, including a lot of like, um, including for the sort of middle classes. Because, you know, I think like the situation we have in Joburg, it's, it's horrible. And this is something that's generalized throughout South mm -hmm. Africa where, you know, we're so used to having cameras everywhere. We're so used to having mm -hmm. barbed wire everywhere. We're so kind of used to um, armed response. And I think, um, again, I, I understand it because I think the thing about like being in proximity to crime and violence is that, you know, crime and violence are such visceral experiences at yeah. a personal level yeah. that any kind of like rational, a lot of, you know, a lot of like a lot of kind of rational approaches to it kind of break down yeah. just in terms of the emotional experience of yeah. that. So I completely understand in a way why this kind of why we're in this situation yeah. but i think what i really really tried to argue for in the book is that it literally cannot last because yeah. we're in a situation now there's a global economic crisis um environmental conditions are it's it's messed up when i was like a kid in the in the 90s all the kind of worst case dystopian scenarios you would kind of see on like movies and tv feel like know, they're kind of happening now yeah and, you know, it's just, um, I really wanted to just like break that sense of complacency. I mean, even if my, even if people don't necessarily agree with, you know, the suggestions I lay out for some of the alternatives, I, I think that's like the point I'd really like people to take away from that, which mm. is that, and we can't have democracy if things kind of carry on going on like this. There needs to be mm. some form of like collective response to that. And, you know, that collective response is just good for individuals. It'll make mm. a society that's a lot better than it is now. Mm. And I want to ask uh, maybe as a, as a closing question, um, given the, the sense of urgency that I think your book very powerfully relays for a, for a left that everywhere in the world, but particularly in South Africa, that is disorganized and, and fragmented, but is in the process of trying to reconstitute itself. What, how does a, uh, how does it approach police reform what are what are the i'm trying to think of this in a very concrete way if if maybe abolition is something that is too remote and too inapplicable to our circumstances what are the kinds of slogans that are circulated what is what is the program for for police uh, reform that is that is advanced even though there's there's ways in which we can only think about some alternatives in the in maybe 15 or 20 years and over the next five years what are the 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 proposals that we make to to members of the public that can convince them that uh all of the social forces around we are the ones taking the police seriously mindful of of all of the the challenges um that they 
need to address, um, but also the ways in which they, they can't do so as they do now. Uh, thanks. Um, I think I would suggest maybe two things about that, especially in terms of having, you know, a sort of short term minimal project. Mm. I think the first one is literally to agitate around um, denormalizing police violence, denormalizing police corruption, pointing out that, you know, the stuff is unacceptable, naming and shaming officers, mm. recording officers. Just creating, I'm not sure the slogan. I mean, I, I need to actually go back and think of some slogans, uh, but I, this, I'm on the spot now. But I think something like that, you know, just kind of not treating these things as normal, not treating it as normal that, you know, for example, a 16-year-old kid can be mm. killed because um, in the Nathaniel Julius case, like, you know, because police claimed that they couldn't understand what he was saying because he was a um, disabled child. He wasn't able to articulate himself properly. And just, you know, stop treating this as normal or a natural tragedy actually bringing outrage and just bringing up the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, SAPS and municipal police officers are meant to be public servants. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not acceptable for them to get a 20 rand bribe, you know, like that's become, you know, and so I think just calling things violence, calling things corruption, that's really, really important. I also think something that is very important is that we have a situation now because the left in this country is very weak. There's also... Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of like authoritarian and yeah, kind of, yeah. um, you know, sort of compromised leadership who are not prepared to work with others, are not prepared to, you know, um, engage with present realities, but want to force very specific sectarian visions. And that politics also needs to be really addressed because mm. if you are acting like that when you're outside of power, what is going to happen when you exactly. have the ability to, you know, control the police? That's a bit of a speculation but you know it's something to really think about and i also think there's a big danger now because what's happened is there's organizations like action sa and the patriotic alliance they've identified the problems which people have on a daily life which is like the economy is ruined there doesn't seem to be any sort of government plan to build it you know daily crime daily social order disorder and those are the things any kind of left needs to be organizing about. Mm -hmm. Don't think of big ideological statements. Exactly. Actually look at exactly. viable, viably <laughs> fixing things. Because even if people don't necessarily, even if it's going to take a few years, at least if people have a sense, well, there's some kind of social contract and I might not necessarily, you know, be living the life of my dreams, but there's an opportunity for my children to do that. And I think if people had a sense of like, okay, even if things are difficult, at least there's some kind of forward movement, forward momentum. That's something I think the left needs to be organized because I don't think, you know, you can talk around just organizing around police. You also need to talk about, you know, exactly. things like dealing with, um, you know, this kind of wild scale systematic corruption. And that's like, we need to deal with that. It's not just, it's not just a few bad actors. It's yeah, become institutionalized. Exactly. How do we deal with that? And I also think, oh yeah, sorry, back to Action SA and Patriotic Alliance. So, they have very correctly and astutely realized what people, they've, they've realized what people's legitimate angers are. And that is something that I think any left program needs to just organize itself around. The problem is they are um, including that with like extreme xenophobia. Mm. They are, um, you know, because it's, it's unfortunately there is something with humans where a lot of the time it's easier for us to hate people and hate things that we don't understand than to, you know, um, move towards like a more positive vision of the future. So I think... A lot less slogans. I mean, no, anti-police violence slogans are good, but the left in general, you know, a lot less slogans, a lot slogans more Slogans not from 1918. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And like just, you know, 2022. And I mean, we've been through a pandemic. We live in a very bizarre society where, you know, we, we've had to deal with like 
you know, social media, which has kind of caused like a psychological apocalypse, I think. Exactly. And um, I think that that's really, really to focus on because, I mean, one of my arguments for this book is that as... Because, you know, there's become a thing now in South Africa where people are trying to pretend that, you know, the constitution is the impediment to social change. And, you know, oh, somehow our constitution now is the problem. The problem is, you know, it's a political and economic system which benefits very rich people Mm. and super connected people. And um, the sort of, like... So again, I'm not, again, like I always feel that, you know, democracy is an unfinished project. It's not that we're living in this kind of utopia that's, but, you know, the price of democracy is constant vigilance. And I think that um, just as a baseline is basically saying the police, even if maybe hopefully in the future, we won't need such institutions Mm -hmm. at the moment, they should at least act within constitutional frameworks and also not act in a way that's constantly wasting money that could be spent Mm -hmm on, you know, um, other things. And so I think a lot of like quite commonsensical sort of ideas, because one of the things I realized with this book, um, it was like, it ended up, I feel being quite sort of pragmatic because, you know, I don't end up with sort of like, oh, we need a- Which is why it's great. (laughs) We don't need like a map, because I think one of the problems is a certain kind of left-wing criminology, which sometimes falls into this very simplistic frame where it's like, after the revolution, there will be no more crime. And it's just, it was, that, you know, things historically have never played out like that. Mm-hmm. And I think, like, um, it's very important to actually look at issues of crime, social order, look at how people actually are, you know, not not try to offer, like, utopian exactly. solutions, but just, you know, I mean, there are a lot of pragmatic things we could be doing to lower violence, exactly. lower criminality. And I think just a minimal platform with the police where it's basically like, look, you know, you can't just bribe people all the time. You can't just beat people. And, I mean, something you mentioned the other day about how, I mean, I've experienced in Joburg in the last year, like two attempts of like SAPS officers trying to shake me down or shake down people I was with. And it's, it was like ludicrous. Cause I mean, we knew it was nonsense. They knew it was nonsense. It's this ridiculous theater we're going through. And it's like, come on guys. And you know, it's like if if you've, and cause a lot of people who justify police corruption, like internally is, you know, they'll say, oh, we're not paid enough and so on. Which again, you know, a lot of police do have a very difficult job and they have to end up in pretty dangerous situations, mm-hmm. which I think often, you know, are very kind of mess people up. But at the same time, you know, it's like we shouldn't normalize the idea that it's like, you know, it's like, do you go to a hospital and a surgeon, well, actually with private healthcare, yeah. <laughs> but you know, like, you know, it's not like a nurse is gonna, you know, shake you down for yeah, money yeah. while you're in your Before bed. Before they operate on you, yeah. We don't expect yeah. it from them. Yeah. We shouldn't expect it from the police. So I think, yeah, I think a minimal, I think a minimal program of, anti-police violence, anti-corruption could actually go a long way. But I also think, just maybe as a final point, it it's also a very politically good time for it. Absolutely. Because we've seen with sort of state capture and that, how because of a lot of these institutions have been eroded, and as eroded as they are, you know, at the end of the day, government should be afraid of the citizenry because we're the ones who actually do hold the keys to vote them in or out. And I think there can be a lot done if we just start thinking of like just a minimal, minimal program. <laughs> just, yeah, that's it. Just the basics, guys. Just the basics, please. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program. A reminder, we've been discussing Christopher McMichael's new book, Shoot to Kill, Police and Power in South Africa. Chris, tell our listeners where they can find this book if they're on South Africa, if they're not in South Africa. Where do they find it as well? Oh, um, so this will be available. I think you can buy it right now. Um, physically, you can buy it at the commune in, in Bramfontein and you can buy it at surplus books in Cape Town. And I'm actually going to be, oh, yeah, do yeah go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. I'm going to be doing a, um, 
an event there on uh, the 16th of September, which I'm really looking forward to. And you can also order it online. So in South Africa, you can order it online on uh, Take A Lot and Loot. And then I'm very excited about this. It's also available for order in the US on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. <laughs> I, I got the email. <laughs> Brilliant. Whole list. So yeah, it's That's very, exciting. very available <laughs> in the United States. And yeah, so um, Shoot to Kill, Police and Power in South Africa. Thank you so much, Chris. It's a brilliant book. And I encourage all our listeners to get themselves a copy wherever you are. Uh, I think, as you probably heard, there's lots that I agree with. <laughs> and thank you so much for tuning into the Africa's a Country podcast. A reminder that we are Africa's a Country's... Once again, not sure how regularly we'll be releasing episodes. But however regularly we'll release episodes, it'll become regular again. And join us for the next one as we discuss political events on the continent from a left perspective follow us on twitter facebook instagram and most importantly check out africasacountry.com for new writing and i mentioned earlier chris's latest article on medical xenophobia in south africa do check that out as well my name is william shorkey and i will catch you next time bye